cliffcentral.com. Good day and welcome to Disrupt with Mpumin Tlapo on Cliff Central, brought to you by T-Systems. We have another very, very interesting episode of the show. In the studio with me is Justin from Lighthouse Law. Justin, good morning. Morning, Mpumi. How are you doing, Justin? Good, thanks. How are you? Good. We're speaking law, technology, disruption, and all that good stuff. That sounds right. And just before the show, um, we were saying, should we maybe tell people doom and gloom and all the weird and wonderful things that technology will do from a legal perspective? Yeah, sure. So I think, um, I think we're seeing interesting times in the legal sector. And I do think that technology has a big part to play in what's happening. Um, I think that uh, there is a risk that uh, lawyers are pretending to be software developers, which, um, <laughs> which is very scary and um, perhaps something to be avoided. But there's no doubt that technology can play a big role in improving the way that lawyers are providing legal services to their clients. Yeah, thanks, Justin. And you're the CEO of Lighthouse Law. We'll, we'll talk about how you become a CEO of a law firm shortly. But just to get into uh, today's show, um, in 2016, T-Systems collaborated with IT Web to conduct research on whether cloud computing, computing would mean an end to traditional ICT outsourcing contracts. And I know that's an area that you guys advise customers on, this area of outsourcing, and whether long-term outsource would still be relevant in a cloud environment. Um, the partnership uh, conducted the survey in May 2016, and there were three key areas that were discussed or that were um, researched um, as part of that survey. The first question was, what are the key challenges that businesses face with the current IT contracting models? The second one, what are the most common causes of dissatisfaction with their outsourced service providers? And then we looked at what views do they have on long-term outsourcing contracts versus these modern as-a-service on-demand um, type of contracts. Um, so, Justin, I'm going to very quickly just go through the findings because I think it gives us quite a nice backdrop upon which to have a conversation about the role that uh, law and contracting and changing in commercial models will have on businesses going forward. So just getting into some of the findings, um, it says here, it's not surprising that when asked what the significant factor is when considering ICT service providers, that costs still gain the highest score at 69%. And I think we would expect that price is still going to be an important factor. Alternative procurement models at 11% and a clearly defined transformation roadmap. So I think outside of the mechanical factors, which is cost and, and the procurement models, customers are starting to look at how these contracts provide a strategy and a roadmap for the future, which is very interesting. Another key finding was that the top three most difficult aspects of contracts to negotiate that came to light were pricing structure, not surprising, service quality and availability, interesting enough, so SLA is still very important, and thirdly, liability and risk. So I'm going to pause there because there's quite a few more, but I think those are two quite important findings that came out of that. So first one, looking at what were the key factors, cost, procurement models, and the strategy, and then the three most difficult aspects. So let's get into it. Is price still very important to customers in today's economy? Uh, yes, I think the answer is yes. And savings are typically at the top of the deck that gets provided to the steering committee for a client when they are looking at the objectives of one of these deals. Um, there's no doubt that cost is a significant driver. But I, what I would say is that it's, it's certainly not the only driver, and we are seeing other drivers become uh, become more prevalent on, on those decks. And um, cloud has probably got quite an important part to play in this. I think, I think that cloud providers, in some senses, have allowed uh, procurement professionals within large organizations who are buying tech services um, more variety in the marketplace. Okay. 
Um, and as a result of that, uh, they can be more creative about the way they are buying those services and meeting the objectives of their organization. So whereas in the past, I guess, you know, if we look back 10 years, uh, organizations were doing these very big single-source outsourcing transactions with yes. tier one providers, and they included full-scope services across networks and apps maintenance and development and desktop um, uh, and the suppliers, the, the tier one suppliers who are, who are doing those deals were, were capable of doing parts of those services well, but I think they would even admit that they were not capable of performing all of that scope uh, to uh, the levels of quality that customers were requiring them to. Okay. So the market then evolves and becomes more sophisticated and there are more suppliers available in the marketplace which in turn means that those big deals start to be broken up and you start seeing a trend away from a single-source environment to a multi-vendor environment. Okay. And so customers are able to buy um, buy with more freedom and buy uh, best-in-class services for their particular chunks of scope, depending on how they've, they've divided up their scope. The cloud providers have then come along and said that um, the... Um, that the model needs to be different and, and cloud is obviously based on the ability to leverage um, a standardized service um, for, uh, created using um, a cheaper cost base, allowing customers to then uh, make greater savings. However, the flip side is that that level of flexibility I've just described mm-hmm. starts to change because whereas, again, traditionally customers would be pushing out a standard set of requirements to describe what they want. So let's say they've now moved to this multi-vendor environment, and one of the towers of scope is a um, uh, a desktop service. Uh, traditionally, what would happen is when the procurement profession, professional goes out to to market, you spend a lot of time documenting all of the detailed requirements of the customer. Okay. Um, the cloud provider is saying, understand those are your requirements, but our model is obviously based on our product and the way we provide that to thousands of customers. The extent to which we constantly change that model undermines our ability to give you the best price because we're able to give you the best price because we have a standardized service that we're providing to you. So, so if I can just then jump in there. So essentially it's, it's moving customers away from these bespoke owned environments to a, a, a shared environment, I mean, to a lesser or greater extent, depending on their requirements. That's, ex- that's exactly right. So, th- so what that means is that you're less capable of forcing your requirements as the customer onto the supplier, and actually what CIOs and CTOs are now having to do is work out how they actually change their business process as an organization in order to fit what the suppliers are able to offer as their solution. And that, I think, uh, CTOs and CIOs are finding is more easy now than trying to get the cloud provider to change what it's doing. I see. And so there is this kind of complete shift that's happening um, away from the customer foisting its requirements and detailed um, uh, objectives onto the, the, the suppliers. And the suppliers are instead saying, we really know how to do this. We really know how to do it well. We're doing it across thousands of customers. And we're loath to change our service just for you, client, when actually we think it's pretty good and it's servicing all of these customers. So the customer is now having to re-engineer its own environment in order to make sure it's getting the best out of what that supplier is able to offer as a cloud service. Okay. And so I say all of that because it kind of goes to the three points that you raised around cost and procurement and transformation roadmap because the cost um, – 
is is driven down by cloud providers. There's no doubt about that. It creates an alternative procurement model because of what I've just said. You're now not trying to develop hundreds of pages of requirements. Yes. You're kind of going to the market and saying, what can you give us? And then rather than the traditional procurement model, which involves here are our requirements, tell us how you're going to meet them, I think there is a more collaborative approach to an RFP or procurement process going on where customers are willing to engage with the suppliers in order to work out how best to fit the two together, the solution from the supplier on the one hand and the customer's organization on the other. And then the third point about transformation roadmap is relevant because that will drive the way that you transform your your technology organization going forward. You're going to be thinking about what the marketplace of um, suppliers is able to offer, um, and that will be a key determining factor in the way that you're then putting together your roadmap for transformation for your, for, for your IT um, function. Now, are you seeing this um, in in a few customers, or is it now is this broad adoption? I mean, we did you know the survey was done a year ago, so obviously a lot has happened since then. But your sense of what's happening in the market is it becoming more commonplace, or is it still those few early leaders that are that are adopting this approach? I think um, I think uh, I think it's still fairly. Nascent, I think, I think that, um, I wouldn't say it's early adoption, but I think that, uh, I wouldn't say it's whole scale, um, you, you know, adoption across the marketplace, but I, but I think it's inevitably going to happen. And it's a nightmare for lawyers, actually, because we, um, like the traditional model of being able to come up with all the requirements <laughs> yep. and beat up the suppliers and say, we're the customer. Who are you to tell us what to do? And present um, big fat documents. And yeah, send hundreds of pages across yep. and, you know, have a, have a great time uh, spending the next six months uh, reading through those documents <laughs> line by line. What's happening instead is that the, the cloud suppliers are saying, we don't really care what your lawyer is saying. We do this for thousands of customers. Here's our standard contract. We're not willing to change the standard contract because it's a nightmare for us to try and create bespoke contracts, just mm. as it's a nightmare for us to create a bespoke IT solution. So customer, take it or leave it. And that power dynamic, it's frustrating because I act for customers most of the time and it's made my life more difficult, but yeah. the power dynamic is changing. I think there are there are lots of issues associated with that dynamic changing, um, which we can talk to, I guess. But um, but yeah, I think what we're seeing is that there is a there is a there is a shift. I don't think it's completely moved. Okay. I also don't think it's the death of of um, of of outsourcing that's not cloud based. I think that um, I think that market will still thrive, but. Um, but there is no doubt that that cloud will become the prevalent way to to deliver and buy services. Okay, for me anyway. I mean, I mean, the next, one of the the big findings then we've spoken about price, but also service quality and availability. Forty seven percent of respondents saying that it was still a key factor. Moving into a cloud environment, does that become less so? I mean, we we kind of expect these big cloud, you know, whether it's Amazon or Microsoft or whatever the case may be, we kind of expect it to be always on and never go down. Is service quality and reliability still a big factor in that world? Uh, it's definitely a big factor. Um, I, I do think it's interesting. At the beginning of a procurement process, when a client engages us, they normally call out service quality um, as at least level with the price driver, if not higher. Okay. And then what happens is you go through uh, the procurement process only to find that actually the key driver is price. And so service starts to become a secondary, uh, a secondary factor. And, and an example of why that happens is you, you'll have a pricing discussion with uh, the supplier and the supplier will say, we can give you a price of X. But um, if you ask for those nasty service levels, the price is going to be X plus Y. 
And so the customer typically then says, fair enough, if that's the case, we'll, we'll take the X price and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll diminish the extent of our requirements on the service levels. So price does still, still tend to trump service quality as far as, as far as I could tell. The cloud providers, um, are, are less committal when it comes to service availability and reliability. Elaborate on that. So that's not to say that the service is any less. Uh-huh. I'm not suggesting that, but they are um, they are more risk averse, and I think it's because they can be. So, as I said to you, their lawyers are able to say, "Here's our paper. We do this for thousands of customers. This is a standardized product customer. This is how it is. Take it or leave it." Mm. Um, what that means is that those terms are inevitably supplier friendly. That's just the nature of the game. If, if the customer puts out their paper, then the customer's paper is uh, in favor of the customer. If the mm. supplier does that, it's, it's supplier friendly. And a key element of risk for suppliers is the extent that they are signing up to risk in relation to the service levels. And uh, to go into a bit more detail on that, if you fail to meet a service level, uh, the question is what happens in the mm. contract? And if you're on the customer side, you're going to say, well, supplier, we expect you to um, to offer some kind of remedy to us if you fail to meet that service level. The remedy is normally in the form of some kind of uh, service credit, which is effectively an amount of money that the supplier will put on the table to say – Fair enough. We've we've not we've not given you the availability that you required last month. Therefore, we will offer you a reduction on price in that last month. Now, that's real money for the supplier. So, yes. real risk for the supplier in one of these deals. And as a result, you're going to try and avoid that as a supplier. So, if you're able to push your paper, you're going to make sure that you do not have you know a generous offering when it comes to the remedy available in your service levels. So, you know, I started by saying that's not to say that the services are any less. That's that's a different point. But okay, the, so we're talking here like uh, legal the, terms. The, yeah, this yes. is a risk-based discussion. So, okay. so, you know, what you know, the lawyers have to paint the worst-case scenario. It's kind of, you know, the, the job. Mm. So you have to say, okay, but what if something does go wrong? And the question then is the extent to which the supplier is willing to put something at risk as a result of that. And, and I think just on that note, the reality is that in moving to the cloud, the customer is actually getting significantly more value than they would probably doing it themselves in the long term. Yeah, I think that's. Well, I mean, I think typically that's why one of the key drivers for outsourcing is that you know customers find that the the kind of non-core activities will be uh, cheaper and possibly better if you engage a supplier who is uh, who does this for a living um, to um, perform those services for you. Okay. And that's no different with cloud. The difference yes. with cloud is that. The leverage available to a to a cloud provider is um, is is typically enormous because they have a standardized product that's successful that has been sold to such a, a large number of clients. Yes. Um, so they are able to drive their costs down further because of the higher level of leverage that's available to them as a supplier. Okay. Liability and risk in 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 a in a digitally transforming world. Uh, we we had a bit of a conversation earlier on about all this new legislation, Poppy. Um, the Patriot Act. Can you maybe just start by just quick definition of each of those and then how they come into the equation moving forward where data and information potentially sits offshore or sits with a cloud provider and then all this legislation around it? Yeah, sure. So, um, so you, you rightly say that the kind of digital world means that data is easily transferred, um, including across borders. Um, what that means is that uh, the kind of basic right to have your personal data protected as an individual um, becomes undermined because your personal data is so freely transferable across uh, digital networks. Yeah. 
Now, um, in order to, uh, I guess, heighten the level of protection that's afforded to data subjects, um, there is legislation that is um, passed in uh, Europe and um, is um, in the process of being passed in South Africa um, uh, in order to kind of legislate for the protection of that personal data. Um, there are the, the the legislation in Europe um, tends to be based on a set of principles, and those principles broadly include um, the uh, obligation for uh, entities that are controlling the personal data of an individual okay. to look after it and make sure that it's secure, to give the data subjects rights so that they can access that data if they want to and know what people what, what organisations are doing with it. Um, and to prevent the free transfer of that data anywhere without some level of control. Um, the uh, Poppy um, is broadly based on European legislation. There are some distinctions, but it is broadly based in, on European le legislation. Okay, and what Poppy stands for? Um, the Protection of Personal Information. information. Okay. Yeah. Act. Correct. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, I believe so. So, what, part of the act is in force, um, and the part that is in force has enabled the regulator in South Africa to be established. And I say that because actually I'm remiss, and I believe the regulator has said that they prefer it to be called Poppier and not Poppy. Poppy, but, um, uh, it's in my head as Poppy, so I'll probably make <laughs> that mistake throughout the show. Okay. Um, so, um, the remainder of the act is um, just waiting for uh, the president to sign it into law, and there is a 12-month grace period during which organizations will then be able to effectively get their house in order to make sure that they can be compliant. Okay. Um, I mentioned that one of the restrictions is the transfer of information um, offshore. Now, cloud providers, um, certainly the bigger cloud providers internationally, um, are typically based um, in the U.S., actually. So th there is a significant um, uh, supplier market with servers based in the United States. Yep. Now, that creates a problem if you're uh, storing personal information from a South African citizen on a server in the U.S. because there is a restriction uh, under Poppy on the ability to transfer that personal information um, outside of South Africa. Okay. Exactly the same as there is a restriction in, the, in, in Europe um, on the transfer of personal data outside of the European economic area. Um, so, so what that means is that as an organization, if I'm hosting or storing my data on a, on a cloud provider that's based in the U.S., um, with the act now in force, um, they'll need to get my permission to store it outside of South Africa. Is, is that kind of what it says, or am I missing that's, it? No, that, that's exactly right. And obviously, the logistics of getting that permission from potentially thousands of customers is is a problem. So, hence the grace it period can be a barrier to entry. Yes, but then there are also mechanisms that are put in place to allow the transfer, provided that you are ensuring that the importer of the data, so let's say the U.S. organization with its servers in the U.S., is um, committing to ensure that it has technical and organizational measures in place to keep your data secure, um, and you have entered into an agreement with that organization to ensure that that's the case, Okay. Uh, then you're helping to mitigate the risk of noncompliance with the Act. In Europe, those are called the model clauses. They're an industry standard set of terms that organizations entered into. Um, and and uh, they're set, and so uh, my view is that in South Africa, a it's not, it hasn't happened yet. But my view is that it's likely that a similar mechanism will be allowed by the regulator. Okay. Um, there are a few other things like binding corporate rules, so big organisations can put in place 
um, systems which uh, the regulators in various jurisdictions are happy with in terms of you know the extent to which they're they're going to keep data secure if if if, if it's transferred um, uh, across borders. There aren't very many organizations that have managed to do that. It's it's complicated and expensive. So there are, there are very few organizations that have put that in place. And then finally, there is the concept of the privacy shield, which was recently entered into between um, uh, the United States and, and Europe, which um, establishes the United States as a safer destination to transfer uh, your data. Now... You mentioned the Patriot Act, and the Patriot Act is an interesting um, piece of legislation in this context. Yes. It's, a, it's an American uh, law, which effectively allows the U.S. government to gain access to data held on servers onshore in, in the U.S. Regardless of where the data originated. That's correct. So um, so I've spent time working in different places, and I, I spent a bit of time working in the Middle East. And I, I say that because there's kind of you, you can imagine this is an amusing anecdote when you're advising a, 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 a national Emirati, for example, about uh, what the laws are in terms of you know what's going to happen to their data when it goes to different places. If they if they understand that in, in America the U.S. government is going to get free access to to their data, that you know it's just it's not particularly it's not pal- a long conversation. It's not particularly palatable, exactly. Yeah. So. so um, so, so actually what that's driving is, um, is more localized data centers because the legislation will be here to stay. It's actually getting more strict in the, in Europe. So next year in May, uh, the general data protection regulation is going to become the new law protecting data in, uh, across Europe. And that has tighter restrictions on, um, on the way that organizations are treating personal data. So it's not going away and it's actually getting more strict. So. Um, the, the larger providers um, are looking to solve that problem by having uh, more local uh, infrastructure. And so local data centers are being set up by, you know, the, the, the bigger suppliers. Yeah, they? yeah. Interesting. And then um, flexibility. Uh, you know, with the consumerization of ICT, we're seeing that, you know, customers are certainly wanting some of the benefits that they that they gain as, you know, Come in and off the platforms as and when I choose, um, use it on demand to the extent that I choose. How does that impact contracting? Because, you know, if in an individual capacity, I guess we just tick the box and accept terms and conditions, but in a corporate setting, it's quite different. Yeah. So I think, I think flexibility is actually an objective that is, uh, has moved up the ranking of, um, on, on the deck that gets presented to the steerco and all these mm. deals. It, it now appears frequently, and I think there are a few reasons for it. Um, it, it what Cloud uh, has had a hand in is, uh, is it, it has helped uh, organizations to switch from one provider to another more easily. So as you've just said, the ability to move from one platform to another tends to be easier with Cloud. On traditional outsourcing deals, those big sole source deals that I mentioned earlier, mm. the um, the cost of change is enormous, and the the time period it takes to move from one supplier to another can be prohibitive. So suppliers knew that, and actually, you know, would do their best to make themselves as sticky as possible with the customer by making it as hard as possible for the customer to exit from those relationships. Um, so it was a big call if the customers' execs decided to move away from one of those big outsourcing deals because it was going to cost a lot of money and um, it was going to take a lot of time and a lot of disruption for the organization. Um, that is changing. So it, it, it changed in the first instance because of the move to the multi-vendor environment that I mentioned. And it's now changed again because, because cloud is enabling this quicker transfer from one, um, one platform to another. 
Um, so flexibility is really key, and it, and it actually mitigates the risk of the service level discussion that I spoke about earlier. Because um, if you are if you are truly unhappy with the quality of service that you're getting from the supplier, then the flexibility that is afforded to you um, with the ability to transfer to an alternative supplier easily will obviously mitigate that risk. It will enable you to do that and it will enable you to, to test the waters elsewhere to see if um, see if your service can be improved. Um, the cost of change isn't prohibitive, so it is still an issue and it is still the case that if you're an incumbent provider, you have an unfair advantage over the rest of the marketplace because yes. the even if you know your competitors are able to undercut you with BAU costs, the cost of change to those um, those competitors can undermine that you know potential cost saving on a BAU basis. So it's still the case that there is a cost of change, but there's no doubt that that cost of change is um, is decreasing, and it's it's more it's, it customers have more flexibility to trans- transfer away. Mm. The the risk the risk point is is interesting. Uh, just to touch on your point about liability and it, the the regulatory framework is one thing, but um, you know, you know the the traditional legal terms of the contract tend to take ages to negotiate, and they drive a lot of frustration for the execs of the organisations, and they drive a lot of fees for lawyers. Yeah. So <laughs> you'll appreciate that there's a, a there, there is a competing uh, tension there, and um, lawyers, uh, in a sense, have an unfair advantage there. So, um, so something's got to change with regards to that, and. There is a study that gets done every year, which has become almost like a standing joke in the legal uh, sector, um, by an international organization for, of uh, contract managers. Okay. And they run the survey and they say, what are the 10 things that get negotiated the most in your contracts? So they're asking the lawyers or the, the – yes, they're asking, asking the lawyers. The contract managers. Okay. Right? So this, this, uh, this uh, community of contract managers. And then they say, what are the 10 things that actually you think are most important to make the deal a success? So the things that get named when they talk about the 10 things that get negotiated the most are the liability clause, the indemnities, the warranties, you know, the, the stuff that the lawyers love talking about. Yep. Then there is the 10 things that are going to make your deal successful. And it's things like the extent to which you've described your services properly, the extent to which you have a change management process in your agreement that's going to allow the parties to be flexible and deal with change the extent to which your pricing is certain and there is a mechanism that's going to maintain competitive pricing with that supplier for the duration of your deal. Wow. So it's very much the kind of service scope, service levels, pricing type stuff in the second list and the boring legal terms and conditions in the first list. Now, if the drivers for success of the contract are the things that are operational, technical, pricing-based – then that's what should be getting most of the focus during the negotiation and we should be getting right. And perhaps less time spent by the lawyers on all of the black letter kind of law items yes. like liability. Yes. So, so and, Justin, sorry, and, 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 and I apologize to cut in there, but I think you, you've touched on something very important, yeah. which is that, but, but are lawyers equipped to deal with that second list? Because I would assume that they'd be very comfortable in terms of the, the legal type of aspects of the contract, but the business aspects, if I can call them that, of the contract would tend to be somewhat foreign. Yeah. So, so, so it's not a, it's not traditionally a comfort zone for lawyers. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> because of what you just said. That's not to say that, that there are many lawyers out there who are, who are very good and are, are capable of dealing with the, um, with the, the full spectrum of the contracts, okay. including, including those. 
but um, but there are many lawyers who are not, and and because the comfort zone re- relates to the strict legal terms and conditions, that's what they will focus on. Now, that's kind of the worst case scenario for a deal because you'll end up with um, a lot of time being spent by lawyers negotiating almost in a silo or in a vacuum the legal terms and conditions. And and will often not pay a lot of attention to the parts of the contract that deal with services and pricing and service levels and governance. Actually. The things that actually matter. Yeah, the things that really matter. So so those areas of the contract, um, if they're neglected in a negotiation, um, will obviously uh, be detrimental to that relationship going forward. Yes. Um, your contract should be treated as the kind of constitution that both parties comply with throughout the relationship of that deal. If an outsourcing contract gets put in the drawer straight after negotiations with the idea that it never gets touched again, I think that you have less chance of success with that relationship. So so the contract itself needs to be written in a way that means it's easy to use as that constitution for the parties going forward. Yeah. And if it is very heavy with very strict legal terms, it's going to go in the drawer because the people who actually have to deal with that contract for the next three years are not going to be lawyers who are trained to kind of read all that stuff. But they are going to need to be able to refer to the change management process to know how to effect a change and make sure that it's contracted for. They're going to need to know, you know, the nuts and bolts of the invoicing process and, mm. and you know, how all that needs to work. Mm. So the extent to which you can make your contract, you know, an easy to use document that uh, the operational teams, the, the governance framework can refer to um, and use for the benefit of the relationship going forward, the more chance you have of success in these deals. Wonderful. So, Justin, let's change tune a little bit and talk about Lighthouse Law. Um, sure. You're the CEO, and I alluded earlier that it's quite strange for a law firm, firstly, not to be called Justin and Friends or, or something yeah. like that, but secondly, to have a CEO. Um, and you mentioned that you guys are trying to do things differently, and, and that's part of why you're structured the way you are. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So I think, I mean, in a sense, the clue is in the name because we're not called, you know, Cornish uh, and Cornish, but... Um, uh, but we're called Lighthouse Law. That's not to say that we are not a regulated law firm in South Africa, and um, and we are. And that element of the business does have, you know, a, a name that's associated with surnames. Um, but as a group structure, um, we refer to ourselves as uh, as Lighthouse, and um, we also have as part of the structure a, a company that is um, uh, that also trades as Lighthouse Law, and we offer services to the South African market and um, uh, the UK market. Um, we are, it, it's certainly correct to say that we are founded um, with a view to doing things differently. Um, I think in a sense lawyers are uh, frauds when they kind of call themselves disruptors because uh, the law is uh, a very staid and, um, uh, I guess, slow adopter of change. Mm. Um, there are good reasons for that. It's an honorable profession, and um, it is important uh, to make sure that it stays that way. However, the flip side is that lawyers are naturally risk-averse. It's kind of part of the job to be, be risk-averse. Absolutely. And so when it comes to your own profession, you know, you, you tend to uh, you tend to adopt the same approach. And the, so, so the, the, you know, the legal sector, sector is kind of ripe for disruption, and it's, it's almost low-hanging fruit when it comes to being able to disrupt it. Uh, you know, not long ago we were still using quills and we're now talking about all of these clever apps that we can, you know, use to, um, provide legal services. So the, um, so the firm is definitely set up to take advantage of the drive towards disruption in the legal sector. And, um, I guess there are a few ways that we're doing that. Um, 
pricing is is certainly one of the key foundation stones, um, and that's our pricing, the way that we price our services. So, you know, the the kind of age old joke about lawyers is that as soon as you start talking to them, they'll turn the clock on and you know start start the time ticking, and they'll charge you by six minute increments. Yeah. So uh, we do not charge by the hour. We've thrown away the billable hour. We don't use that as our pricing model. We are focused on allocating pricing to the value of the work product that we perform for um, our customers. And um, what that does is drive an interesting behavior because whereas when you're charging by the hour, the longer you take to do something, the more money, money you make. Absolutely. Right? We are now saying we'll take risk on this actually and we'll charge you a value-based price for our work product. And that value-based price is based on, you know, our experience of what the value of this thing is in the marketplace, whether it's a, you know, the negotiation of a contract or a review, whatever it is. Um, so we're taking a bit of risk now because that price is set. And if we take too long, we're going to destroy any margin that we hope of making for that product, right? So we have to suddenly think about smarter ways to do things because the smarter we are about the way we do things, the more money we'll make. Absolutely. And so we have to think about ways to improve the services that we're providing um, by speeding them up and making uh, the quality the same and without ever driving risk into the, um, the discussion with the client. And technology is obviously an important part of that. So technology tends to be an enabler for this kind of stuff. Yes, and my understanding is that you, you're... Your, your law firm is heavily technology based in terms of how you do things. Yeah. So we, we are, we are constantly looking at ways that tech can help us to deliver those services, uh, faster and better for, for the customers. And, and as I said, it's not hard as lawyers, right? We, yeah. we are, we are, we're kind of really slow adopters. So, so there's very little so, competition in that space. Yeah. So, so, <laughs> so I don't want to, you know, I can't sit here and pretend that, you know, I'm some incredibly innovative disruptor because actually I'm just doing stuff that's blatantly obvious in, in the, the legal fraternity. Um, but, you know, for, for example, we are looking at ways to speed up uh, document uh, creation, uh, you know, the slightly boring nuts and bolts topic. But if we are having to produce a contract, you know, the question is how do we do that in a quicker way to enable us to produce that contract faster for the client so that, you know, that speeds up that procurement process and that collaborative interaction between the customer and the supplier through mm. the cloud discussion. Um, and there is technology out there that's starting to become much more sophisticated to enable you to do that. So it will, you know, there is document automation technology which will enable you to populate a few fields and it will generate a contract for you at the back of it based on what you've asked it to do. So, you know, we need to get to the point where you can say our objectives for this deal are cost, flexibility, drive down risk and improve our service levels. And it is a desktop deal and it is local to South Africa um, and these are the parties. And you should be able to generate a contract that meets all of those objectives and, and fits those requirements without spending the literally weeks it would normally take to develop all of that material um, uh, with the lawyers. And that's just, you know, that's one example. There are plenty of examples of where tech can enable that. But, but I mean, what, what I would, what I would, what I'm keen to impress is that we're not selling tech, right? We're, you know, we are, we are lawyers and, um, there is no substitute uh, for our clients to have the trust-based relationship that they will have with their legal counsel. They want that. They still want that. So in my experience and having, having looked at ways that we can innovate for the last few years now, there's, there's no substitute for that feeling that the customer has that their lawyer is next to them in the trenches and they will have their back if, um, in a negotiation. 
That said, what the clients are saying is that you've got to get more efficient about the way that you are delivering and, and, and delivering work product to us. Um, so it's a combination of a few things. We very much have people at the center of our organization and our, and our, our solution to clients. And those people need to be a good match for the relevant clients, and they will be there by their side in the trenches at 2 in the morning when the big negotiation is going down. Mm. But those people will be armed with all of the tech that we're able to bring to bear to enable them to provide a very efficient service to that client, um, while at the same time maintaining levels of quality and not driving risk into the discussion. But, um, so, so, I mean, that's, that's obviously very good in terms of traditional law. Um, I, I attended a talk yesterday and I just want to chat a little bit, a little bit about this. Um, and they spoke about this lawyer bot. I don't know if you've, you've, you've heard about the, the bot in the US that was built by a young man, Joshua Browder. Um, and it's been negotiating parking fines. I think it negotiated on behalf of 160,000 people and, and overturned 160,000. No. So there were 250,000 tickets in London and in New York and 160,000 of them, it actually got overturned. Yeah. So we're seeing disruption. You know, they say disruption starts off slowly and then it's all of a sudden. Yeah. Um, do you see this kind of growth of algorithms taking on some of the more transactional type of legal um, engagements becoming to the fore? What, what are your thoughts yeah. on that? So, um, yeah, so AI, artificial intelligence is the kind of flavor of the month in terms of you know, the conversations going on around uh, at least the new law community, I guess. Mm. Um, and, and, I, and I guess the question is, well, are, are all lawyers going to be replaced by robots? And I'm sure that the, you know, the listeners out there are saying, yes, finally. Um, <laughs> um, and I think that, uh, I think it's a fascinating context, uh, concept. I, I think that, I think it is inevitable that artificial intelligence will start to, um, to play a key role. I think that there are more commoditized areas of law that will more easily lend themselves to artificial intelligence. So parking fines is a great example. I mean, that is likely to be, um, a very process driven, um, and standardized approach to uh, to a dispute, right? There, there yes. is there is a there is a set way that those will get um, get issued and challenged and resolved. Um, and in that way, they lend themselves to uh, technology because you can create algorithms al- algorithms to deal with each of those steps in that process. So I do think that artificial intelligence will be capable of dealing with the more commoditizable areas of legal services. However, I am not convinced that, uh, sorry to say, that this will be the death of lawyers. I think what this will mean is that actually lawyers are freed up to do the stuff that um, human beings will hopefully always do best, which is to provide um, the kind of judgment call type advice to their client uh, when their client kind of needs it. Yes. and that, and I've said it a few times, and, I, and I, I've, I've come to think that this is incredibly important. This kind of trust-based relationship between any professional services advisor, actually, um, but in our context, a lawyer and the client, is is really fundamental. And if you ask um, uh, any kind of C-level executive whether they would feel comfortable walking into 
a bet the company uh, transaction negotiation mm-hmm. with I think the uh, bot's name is Ralph actually with with whatever the robot's name is yes. next to them. I suspect right now they'll say no thanks. I'll I'll take the guy that I've had or the the woman I've had with me for the last fifteen years yes. by my side. He's yes. been he's he's been protecting me. Right? Mm. I think that uh, I think that's here to stay for a bit longer. But I mean, with the millennials coming through, Generation Z that we talk about now, I mean, they they've grown up in this world. So you know, if they've got an IT contract to negotiate, just to take an example, and uh, click this button to get X percentage of SLA and click that one. I mean, do you not see it becoming more and more prevalent? And, and notwithstanding that there will be those judgment calls, those gut feeling type of things where you just need to speak to someone. But I'm talking more now to just this disruption becoming more and more of a factor into the space. Do you not see that really growing, especially with the younger generation coming into, you know, mainstream and corporate world and the legal fraternity, et cetera? Yeah, for sure. So, so, um, the extent to which you can speed up, automate, use tech to enable faster um, uh, processes and services, including in your contracts, that's going to happen. Yeah, that that is and that is happening. I mean, we uh, we're not alone in this, but for example, when we are going through one of these alternative procurement models, one of the key things is determining how you assess the suppliers in the bidding process uh, based on their approach to risk and. Instead of producing you know, pages and pages of Word documents to describe, you know, each area where the supplier is non-compliant, yes. we now use tools to show um, the an easy comparison of the risk profile across the suppliers, you know, in in uh, illustrative form, so that the procurement professionals can easily see the graph showing, you know, which suppliers are more risky than others. And can easily use that as part of their overall evaluation process as to which supplier to down select to. So there's no doubt that that you know the levels of technology are uh, infiltrating all areas of what we're doing. Okay, fantastic. Can we talk a little bit more about Lighthouse, um, the law firm? Um, you you do things differently, so certainly adopting technology. Do you do traditional legal work? I mean, are there other things that you do within the group outside of the legal work? You mentioned there's a company in there as well. Yeah, so so uh, as a corporate, um, uh, you know, we we have. I, I think I think our structure is different, which enables us to be a little bit more agile than uh, the, the traditional big law environment, okay. and I think that's important. And it's important because if we're going to harness things like technology in a, in order to improve our services, you need to have that level of agility. You, it's very hard to move. You know, it's like the big wheel turns slowly and, you know, the smaller wheel turns faster. So, yes. so we're able to be more agile and, and do things differently faster. So the corporate structure lends itself to that. But we're absolutely a law firm and we do provide, uh, you know, legal services and advice to our clients. We're just doing it, trying to do it in a way that speeds it up and makes it more um, cost-effective to them. And I guess the thinking on this started almost 10 years ago now, actually, amazingly, around about the credit crunch where you had um, general counsels within organizations coming under greater pressure from CFOs to decrease their uh, their legal spend. Yes. And the golden age of, you know, the billable hour with, you know, lawyers in ivory towers charging uh, very high rates with, you know, the concept of the longer you take, the more money you make, um, was inevitably going to start to um, be dismantled. And um, what what 
what what was happening in parallel is that the levels of compliance and regulation were increasing, right? So you've got regulators around the world looking at what the banks have done in relation to the credit crunch and going, we need to implement higher levels of control to make sure that doesn't happen again. That increases the level of work for a general counsel because they're now having to do more in order to be sure that their organization is, impl- is implementing um, what it needs to implement to be compliant from a risk perspective. So the general counsel's workload is going up and the CFO is saying, you got to cut costs. So to do more, but doing more work. Right. So, yeah. you know, do more for the terrible phrase, do more for less. Yes. So, um, general counsels then go, well, okay, but in order for us to do that, we've got to make sure our external counsel are thinking smartly about how they're going to perform their services for us because we've got to cut the amount that we're spending with them. And in order to do that, they've got to figure out how to reduce their costs as well. So, so in a sense, external law firms are, are kind of being forced, and this isn't true of all practice areas, but it's certainly true of the technology uh, media sector. Okay. Um, and you know, external law firms are having to think about how to do this smartly. So, so I mentioned the way that we price being a differentiator, and I, and I think that's true. I think that's for because we price, we then give price that way. We give price certainty to the customer, and we got to figure out how to do things efficiently. So. Um, so, so that's certainly a driver behind the way that Lighthouse thinks and operates. We have to be innovative because we're providing traditional legal services, but we're doing it in a way that's hopefully smarter and um, more cost-effective for our, for our clients. We're obviously structured in a way that we're performing services um, actually as an offshore outsourced service provider in the context of the UK. Okay. So we are based in South Africa, um, and we have uh, fairly significant clients in the UK who are using our services. There is clearly a labor arbitrage, uh, labor arbitrage component to that. Um, but there is also uh, the ability for us to be more competitive with peers who are still sitting in those ivory towers in the city of London um, with significant costs. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's fairly easy for us to be able to be very competitive in comparison with those guys, while at the same time delivering um, you know, services that are world leading. We've all come from these, you know, major international law firms, um, uh, capable of performing, you know, that level of service. So the structure in terms of geography is interesting for us as well, because in a sense, we're an offshore services provider to the UK. And, and one wouldn't expect law to be capable of being offshored in that way. It's yeah, not something you no, find it's, commonly. It's interesting because most lawyers spend most of their time in front of their computers or on their telephone, right? Okay. You can be anywhere doing that. <laughs> it is You do not have to be you know, next door to the client to be doing that. That said, I also said earlier that you need this sense of trust-based relationship with your lawyer by your side when you need them. So we do tend to kind of mix the solution to enable on, on-site, in-person presence when there is that need um, from a negotiation perspective. I think that's going to change a little bit with technology as well. And I think as um, uh, telecommunication uh, technology develops with the ability um, to have video conferencing that's more sophisticated, um, you'll find that you know, that becomes more prevalent even for lawyers performing services for their customers. Um, it's obviously good for the carbon footprints as well because Absolutely, it stops yeah. people flying all over the place. Um, there is, a, there is a final element that's really fundamental to what Lighthouse is about, though, which we haven't touched on, which I, which I'd like to, if that's okay. Um, we um, are very much operating within the South African context, though, and um, 
I think that we have an amazing opportunity to make a difference in the legal sector in South Africa from a transformation perspective. And I say that because um, I've spent the last four years trying to kind of build this legal services solution. And um, uh, time and again, when we've gone through a recruitment exercise, particularly at a junior level, we will get an extraordinary number of CVs across our desk from graduates from universities. And uh, and they're not white. They're black graduates. Mm -hmm. And they either can't find articles or they can't find jobs. A real example is last year in September, we uh, advertised for a, a kind of legal advisor role. Um, and um, I think we ended up with around 300 CVs. Um, the, the majority graduates. of, yeah, yeah, the majority, so LLB graduates, yep. the majority of which were black and they couldn't find articles or jobs. And this was in Cape Town. This wasn't, you know, this was, this was Cape Town, not Johannesburg. Wow. 300. Yeah. So there, there is clearly a problem, right? And it's not, of course, we all know that there's a problem. There's, yeah. you know, a huge unemployment rate. So, but it's not, you know, that is true of the legal profession as well. Um, we have an opportunity as um, a, a small, hopefully growing organization who are doing things differently to take advantage, actually, of um, that marketplace of, of graduates. Um, you mentioned Generation Y earlier, and there's no doubt that they will be easier adopters of a different way of doing things. So, um, you know, we're looking at different ways to do this, but at the heart of it will be what we're calling the Lighthouse Academy, which will be to set up um, an academy for graduates to come through a kind of boot camp in contract law. So, you will, you know, the graduates from the Lighthouse Academy will be capable of hitting the ground running and um, actually performing fit-for-purpose contract services for clients. Um, and, and I say that because straight out of university, a candidate is uh, still writing as if they're writing a thesis and mm. not writing as if they're writing a business message to someone. And, and are they ready? For for the digital it takes, world, it takes well not 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 traditional graduates out of t traditional tertiary education. It, mm. it it takes you know there is this kind of induction that has to take place yeah. in order to get, in order to get them ready. So the idea of the academy is actually to, to to you know to have candidates who come through it who are capable of hitting the ground running more easily. Um, they will have uh, the opportunity to. Um, uh, to have an equity stake in Lighthouse going forward as they come through the academy. And we will do this in collaboration with um, our key clients in South Africa so that there is also uh, you know, a, a network of opportunity for people when it comes to jobs available at the end of the academy. The intention should be that there is something available once, once someone comes through the academy. But... Um, you know, it, it's it's a no-brainer that that level of kind of contribution and transformation is is necessary, and I think we've got a great opportunity to to kind of make a difference and do that. So, so you know, the academy is is a is a really core part of what we're doing, and I think there will be this virtuous circle because what will happen is, you know, people will be coming through the academy, they will either then move into you know client um, posts or um, move into um, opportunities within Lighthouse. And it will start, you know, you will start deploying people into these environments who are already thinking differently and who are already thinking about ways to, 
to improve the way legal services are performed. Absolutely. And that should just end up being a virtuous circle so that those people then become the buyers of services if they've gone into the clients and they're going to buy them in a way which demands actually that you're doing things differently and smarter than what uh, perhaps traditional uh, lawyers have done. And is the academy running already? It's operational? So we've only been going for six months. So we, um, we, how's that going? Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, I mean, I, I'm more tired than I've ever been in my life before, and I have two kids, so I, I this this has possibly been more tiring than that. But, um, but I think um, we've come through the first six months unscathed, and um, we are doing absolutely fine, and and the pipeline of work is strong, and people are excited about. Uh, something new, actually. People are excited about something new. There's a lot of excitement about the academy. It's just an, it's, it's just an obvious thing for, um, for, for people to be doing and people to be involved and excited with. So it's going well. Yeah. Fantastic. Fantastic. Justin, as happens every week on the show, we've run out of time. Okay. Um, but before I let you go, um, questions that I pose to all our listeners every week. The first one being, and, um, you've kind of touched on it, but your vision for, South Africa and Africa going forward from the from the perspective that you sit what would you say that is yeah so I think um, I think that it's uh, critical that everyone is looking to give opportunities for development and growth and it sounds so glib and obvious but it is obvious yeah. and and I don't think that um, I don't think that those opportunities are as readily available as they should be. And um, I think it's incumbent on people like me uh, and many others out there to to be making sure that you're thinking unselfishly because ultimately it is going to be to the benefit of everyone if you are thinking unselfishly. So, so I think... Um, I think that you know the the opportunities for growth and development need to become more prevalent, and people who are in positions um, where you know who, who have the opportunity to do it should make sure that they are building those opportunities for growth and development for others. Yeah, so it's kind of doing the things that seem obvious, but it's the doing. Yeah, it's exactly. Doing, it's, right? it's, it's easy to talk about, but yeah. um, putting into practice is not easy. And um, but I'd urge everyone to do it. And your definition of disruption, we've spoken on different elements or aspects of it, but how do you define it for yourself? Yeah, so I think, um, I think for me, uh, I mean, it's interesting because disruption can have a negative connotation to it. And I think that, you know, disruption for disruption's sake is a little bit dangerous. Um, I think that for me, disruption should be about, um, change with a view to doing things better. Um, and there are some industry sectors where uh, that is easy to do and and the legal services sector is is ripe for disruption in a positive way thank you very much thank you justin the ceo of lighthouse law justin cornish thank you for joining us today for a very interesting discussion to get more information on lighthouse law um uh, more information on the poppy act um you can find justin's detail on the T-Systems microsite, it's www.unoutsource.co.za. It's www.unoutsource.co.za. You'll also find all the podcasts from previous weeks, information on all our guests, as well as their profiles and how to get hold of them. Um, yes, we've come to the end of the show. Thank you very much. Thank you to our sponsors for making the platform available. From myself, Mpumi Tlapo, thank you very much for joining us on Disrupt with Mpumi. See you next time. Cliffcentral.com.